glad to be back with you. I was in Tulsa last week and missed being here. So it's, are you clapping for Tulsa or the fact that I'm back? Okay, good. Good, Tulsa. Everybody loves Tulsa. All right. Um, had the opportunity to go to a university church network, and so um, had the privilege of turning it over to Ani last week, and so I heard heard good things about Ani teaching and um, Ani singing as well. Um, multi-talented. So anyway, it's good to be back. It's good to uh, be at past the halfway point in Ecclesiastes. I know it seems like we've been plugging away for a long time. Um, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. Tonight we're only going to get through a chapter, but after that we're going to start progressing past more than just one chapter a night. That's my goal. Uh, yeah, I know, right? No promises. So um, I really want to do that because that means we'll actually be done before Thanksgiving, and that's my ultimate goal. So um, we are going to start in on, on chapter 7 here momentarily. Just for those of you who haven't joined us, um, Ecclesiastes is a book, a wisdom literature book, and you're going to hear me reference Kohelet. Kohelet is the teacher, the one who's the preacher, the one who presents the ideas here. And we're actually going to see the word the teacher here in a little bit. And so it's interesting because it's speaking almost in third person, which isn't done a lot. A lot of it's done in first person context, but today we're actually going to see where it talks in third person. Um, So Kohelet is a book investigating trying to figure out what it is we work here on earth for. Why in the world do we toil and work so much? What do we get out of it? And all in all, life is just vanity. We see the word vanity. We're going to see vanity over and over. Um, and, and a lot of people, the word for vanity is actually havel in Hebrew. And so um, we've come to, to interpret that as balance. Um, and tonight we're actually going to take a look at it as possibly meaning a little bit of um, temporary as well. So we'll get to that here shortly. Um, So without any further ado, let's go ahead and read through chapter 7, and then we'll break it down. Chapter 7 goes as this. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of everyone, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of countenance, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of the thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. And this also is vanity. Surely oppression makes the wise foolish, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. The patient in spirit are better than the proud in spirit. Do not be quick to anger, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Do not say, Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is is as good as inheritance, and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to the one who possesses it. Consider the works of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that mortals may not find out anything that will come after them. Verse 15. In my vain life I have seen everything. There are righteous people who perish in their righteousness, and there are wicked people who prolong their life in their evil doing. Do not be too righteous. And do not act too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be too wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of the one without letting go of the other. For the one who fears God shall succeed with both. 
Wisdom gives strength to the wise, more than ten rulers than are in a city. Surely there is no one on earth so righteous as to do good without ever sinning. Do not give heed to everything that people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have yourself cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which is, is far off, and deep, very deep. Who can find it? I turn my mind to know and to search out, and to seek wisdom in the sun, in the sum of all things, and to know that wickedness is folly, and the foolishness, what's madness? I found more bitter than death the woman who is a trap, whose heart is a snare and nets, whose hands are fetters. One who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. See, this is what I found, says the teacher, adding one thing to another to find the sum, which my mind has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made human beings straightforward, but they have devised many schemes. And that, my friends, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, question mark. I'm Ron Burgundy. Um, we talked about Havel being balanced. And, and the reason we talk a lot about that is because we mentioned this idea of a roller coaster that we go through as we read through Ecclesiastes. Ups and downs and he's happy and then he's sad. And, and, and we continue on our roller coaster here. And he starts off with a, with a simple proverb. A good name is better than precious ointment. Proverbs 22.1 actually says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. So this is a common idea. A good name is better than ointment. Ointment being something precious, right? Something worth monetary value. The intangible is more valuable than the tangible. A good reputation is more valuable than silver and gold. And so he, he says this kind of drawing us in, like, as, as people who are, who are wise, right? We're wise people. This is wisdom literature. You kind of shake your head and you're like, yeah, of course. Reputation, yeah, you'd rather have that than, than money, right? Yeah, it's good, good. You shake your head. Good, we're on board with this. And then he just flat pulls a bait and switch and says, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Excuse me? The day of death is better than the day of birth? See, throughout chapter 7, he's going to keep making these comparative statements of kind of good, better, and best. It's, it's actually more of just good and better. But in English, we learn that there's good, better, and best. So you had to throw the third one in there. No, it's, it's just kind of this, you get this continual good and better. And we're going to see that repeatedly throughout this. And so here he starts it by saying that the day of death is better than the day of birth. And this isn't the first time he mentions that either. He's referenced that before. The idea that, that death could be better than birth. Well, that's tough for us because usually we cry when we go to a funeral. Cry tears of sorrow. But whenever we go to see somebody being born, well, we cry tears of joy, right? So this seems to be a little bit ironic to us. So if, if you want to flip back and find your references, it's, refer it's chapter 4, verse 2, and chapter 6, verse 3. Um, I'm sure many of you are going to 
write that down so you can check that out later. But, um, but he doesn't stop here. You know, he's mentioned this idea of, of death being better than birth, but he doesn't stop here. He continues on with, with this ironic statement. He says, that it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Well, again, why would I want to go to the house of mourning if I had the option to go to the house of feasting? Because mourning's sad. But feasting, well, that's a party. People throw feasts when they're having a party. Well, Kohelet tells us it's better for mourning. Why? Because we have just as much to learn from mourning as we do from feasting. We have just as much to learn from, from all those sad times as we do from all the joyous times. And this is ironic for Proverbs, or for a proverb, for wisdom. And yet he insists that we must learn from it. So he goes on, he says, for this is the end of everything, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorry, this is the end of everyone. What is the end of everyone? Death is the end of everyone. We've talked about this already. We all have the same outcome, that being death. Death is the equalizer. And that's why everybody wants to look at Ecclesiastes and go, man, this is a really depressing, pessimistic book. But when we're being honest, right? We all know that death is our final destiny. And what Kohelet's wanting to teach us here, and what we're going to figure out here, when he says, the living will lay it to heart, as living people, you better darn well take seriously that you're going to die. That's That's what he's saying. Death is our destiny. You better well take that to heart. And he goes on to say, Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of countenance, the heart is made glad. Well, again, this is a little ironic. And, and my thought was when I read this, rather than just saying, Sorrow is better than laughter for sadness of countenance, the heart is made glad, I thought it would be really good to say, comes to appreciate gladness, right? Because without, without sadness, you can't really know gladness. This is what he's developing here. We can't know the good without the bad. Without death, we don't actually even know life. It's through death that we come to appreciate life. On to verse 4. The heart of the wise is the house of mourning. The hearts of fools is in the house of mirth. Mourning. This is the second time he's mentioned mourning already. And does anybody, can anybody think off the top of their head of another person that mentioned mourning? in a certain discourse that he might have given on a mount when he said certain people were blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Not that they're blessed simply for mourning, but they're blessed because they will indeed be comforted. That's a promise that Jesus gives in in the Sermon on the Mount, that all of you who are mourning... You may be in a time of mourning now, but you will indeed be comforted. That's a promise of Jesus. So you've got to feel pretty good about that. If you're in a state of mourning right now, just hold on. Right on the corner is, is that, that blessedness that Jesus refers to. Hearts of fools 
is in the house of mirth. We've, we've seen this comparison between fools and wise continuously throughout um, Ecclesiastes. And that's because, again, it's wisdom literature. So he's wanting to give you the idea of what should you do to be wise as opposed to what you do to be foolish. Well, it turns out here, the idea of being in the house of mirth, if you don't know mirth, I had to look it up too. It's the idea of laughter, like um, just kind of this like, um, I can't even read my own writing, is that bad? Amusement type laughter, right? So you just you just picture foolish people who are like in this house being all giggly and goofy and like, like he's basically saying like, no. Like the, there's a time for all that kind of stuff, but that's basically what fools consume themselves with. Wise people, well, they have, they have their other idea, and, and they're going to be in the house of mourning because that's what they learn. Verse 5, It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. There's a lot of vocal references he's going to make to fools, which we're going to keep seeing. Um, hear the rebuke of wise. Rebuke being the idea of constructive criticism. It's much better to have constructive criticism from somebody who's wise than it is to just hear the continued praise of foolish people. Because what can we learn from praise from foolish people? You do a bad job, oh, you did great. It's not productive, that's not helpful. We can't learn from that. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot is the laughter of fools. I don't know how many of y'all grew up on a farm. I grew up on a farm. Um, and you burn things a lot on a farm for, for heat, for whatever. We didn't actually cook food in a pot, luckily. I know we're from Missouri, but it's not that bad. We did have a stove. Um, but when, when you cook things on a pot, you put wood under it to get it warm, right? Well, if you know what a thorn bush looks like, usually thorns are really thin. So to actually produce enough heat to warm a pot would require a bunch of thorns. You have to just pack them in there and keep packing them in there. And if you've ever heard a thorn, a thorn burn, it crackles and like pops. Like snack, crackle, pop. Not really, but it does pop. And it makes a lot of noise. And so you're having a soundtrack to like hearing your food cook because it's obnoxious. And this is what fools are. You put fools on a fire and they pop too. No, not really, that's not what he's saying. But they just continually are loud, obnoxious, foolish. And what is this? Well, this is vanity. This is balance. This is temporary. We'll get to temporary. Verse 7, Surely oppression makes the wise foolish, and a bribe corrupts the heart. This is a really random verse. Um, it kind of comes out of the middle of nowhere. He's talked a lot about oppression in the past. Kohelet has in his previous chapters. Um, and you read it and you're just kind of like, surely oppression makes the wise foolish. Well, why does oppression make the wise foolish? I don't know. I don't know why oppression makes the wise foolish. I mean, there's certain scenarios you can think of where you think, well, yeah, like, if a wise person were put in oppressive situations they may do foolish things or if a wise person is oppressing people you would say that's probably foolish but we don't get a lot out of it he, but he goes on to say a bribe corrupts the heart and again this is common wisdom knowledge right of course bribe, bribes corrupt people thank you Kohelet for that very insightful inclusion of common sense chapter or verse 8 
Better is the end of thing than its beginning. The patient in spirit are better than the proud in spirit. So again, he references back to this idea that end is better than the beginning. Death is better than birth. And in fact, the patient in spirit are better than the proud in spirit. Here again, we have these better, better. Better this than that. Better patient than better than proud. And do not be quick to anger, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. When I read this, the first thing I thought of was Psalm 145. It says, the Lord is gracious and slow to anger. That was the first thing that came off the top of my head. Um, and part of it is because there's a song that they sing that, and it sticks in my head, and it gets repeating in my head. But um, back, to, back to Matthew 5. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount also quotes where he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Psalm 145 tells us that the Lord is gracious and slow to anger. So then Kohelet hops in on this idea and says, Do not be quick to anger, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Anger is not something of wise people, at least not being quick to anger. That's for the foolish people. Do not say, Why were the former days better than these days? For it is not for wisdom that you ask this. It's too easy to get caught up in the the good old days. Too easily we convince ourselves that, man, things were way better back then. And in fact, this isn't even business of wise people. It's not a question of wisdom that brings us about. Wise people wouldn't ask this kind of question. He's just throwing it out. It's not for wisdom that you ask this. What's it for? Probably personal gain. Why else would you look back to the past? What does the past have to offer you? Wisdom is as good as an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. We're back to good, right? Good, better. Wisdom is as good as an inheritance. Which is kind of ironic, because so much of what we've studied so far, chapter 6 and a little bit in 5 and stuff, was the idea that don't get you know caught up on, on monetary things and on possessions. And yet here he says, well, wisdom's as good as those things, because isn't that what you usually get in inheritance? You get money or you get land, or at this time probably land was the big part of it. But you get things usually with an inheritance. Well, wisdom is as good as an inheritance. They both offer protection. They both offer safety for the future. Security. Just in very different ways. Right? Because wisdom is something that's going to continue to empower us. But possessions are things that, as we've seen in the past, are going to go away. So he compares them, but they're still different. An advantage. Do you remember advantage? We're back to our advantage word. Yatron, right? Our Hebrew word, yatron. An advantage to those who see the sun. That's kind of a funny funny statement. It can, it can also be translated as, and there is an advantage for the living to those who see the sun. There is an advantage for the living to those who see the sun. For the prophet, they profit the wisdom and offers from the future, right? So they draw on 
the benefit and the profit that we get for wisdom for the future. Similarly, like you would inheritance. Verse 12. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. Again, wisdom and money. Making a comparison. But he's not specifically talking, comparing just wisdom and money. He's talking about the characteristic or the protection aspect of them. So again, comparison, like, not, not just comparing the two, but comparing the functions thereof, these two things. And we're back to the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to the one who possesses it. Wisdom gives life to the one who possesses it. I'm going to say it one more time. Wisdom gives life to the one who possesses it. It's a huge statement. Because what usually gives life? Did you say Jesus? Yeah, right? In Genesis, we have God giving life. Yahweh is the one who brings about life. In the New Testament, we have Jesus giving life. Well, here we have wisdom giving life. This is a huge statement. And how does wisdom give life? Well, when we come to understand that death is the equalizer, death is our destiny, Wisdom gives purpose and meaning to life. We take to heart that death is our destiny. We come to value each and every day. I've never had a near-death experience, but I hear that people that do, right, like they come back and they're like, man, I just, every day's a gift. You know, I'm, I, I should have died then, but I'm still alive, and now I just value every single day. Every day is a gift because what you've had has almost been taken away from you. That's how wisdom is life-giving. If I told you I was going to give you 25,550, you'd take it, right? Like you'd, you'd be like, okay. Well, I didn't even tell you what, what, the, what I was giving you 25,550 of, but assuming it's money. Say I was going to give you $25,550. Nobody would be like, oh, well, okay, I guess I'll take it, sure. But like, what if I told you like, hey, you have the opportunity to go on this game show and you could win $25,550. You'd probably be still a little bit excited because, well, that's free money that you have the potential to win. But like, usually when you go on a game show, you want to be like, become a millionaire, right? Who wants to be a millionaire? Not want, who wants to be a $25,550 right? Like, it's not a lot of money. No one's going to turn it down. Like you could, with $25,000, $550, you could like, you could buy a car. Probably not even a great car. Probably a lot of our cars cost more than that. Um, you could make a fairly good down payment on a house. If you go to SMU, you could pay for like a semester of college. Um, you could do a lot of things with $25,550. What if I told you that's all you had for the rest of your life? What? That's lame. Exactly. It kind of changes the game all of a sudden. And what if I told you that 25,550 was the amount of time that you're allotted? 
That's, that's roughly 70 years. Actually, that's exactly 70 years. And based on like the whole scientific averages, we, we're supposed to live like roughly 70 years, give or take a few years. So you have 25,550 days to live. The number sounds like a lot at first. But then I started doing a little bit of calculations. I've already used 40% of my days. I don't feel very old. Well, I feel old sometimes. I don't feel 40% of my life old. When you start putting numbers and assessing values to these things, well, yeah, like, they start becoming a lot more important. What if rather than using 40% of my days, I found out that I've used 98% of my days? Or just 90 or 85, right? Like, it starts to really gain momentum to you. Temporary things become very valuable for the very fact that they're temporary. You don't take pictures of things that you're going to live, live out day in, day in, day in and day out, right? Like, we take pictures of things because we want to capture a temporary moment. Same with video, right? Temporary things are important because, by definition, they go away. That's how wisdom gives life. When we're just roaming around, thinking that life goes on forever, we take it for granted. And like like you said with G- Jesus, right? Jesus in, in John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. They may have life, but not just any life, abundant life. One of my friends used to always quote, he's a big quote guy. I'm always jealous of people who can actually remember quotes. I can never remember them. I have to write them down. And then if I don't write them down, I forget them. But luckily there's a Google machine. And the Google machine helped me find this quote. It says, live life so completely that when death comes to you like a thief in the night, there will be nothing left for him to steal. That's life-giving, right? That's wisdom. It's the whole carpe diem, right? Seize the day. Abundant life. Not depressed life, like, oh my God, we're all going to die. Yeah, we're all going to die. What's that cheesy song where it says, like, it's all about living the dash in between? I feel like I've mentioned this before and nobody knew what I was talking about. On your tombstone, right? Do I? I think it's a country song. It's got to be a country song, let's be honest. The line between? There you go. Finally, somebody... I'm not making this stuff up. Good. It's all about what happens between our birth and our death, right? And all of those things are indeed temporary. Okay. Back to verse 13. He kind of makes a shift here, which we've seen in so many chapters. Like he really gets going on something and you really want to pick up on something and all of a sudden it's like, boom, shift. We're going another direction. 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Well, no one can make straight what God has made crooked because God made it straight. Nope, God made it crooked. Either way, whatever way God made it, I don't think we have a chance of making it the other way. 
It's kind of a silly question, right? And yet, Kohelet considers it. Consider the work of God. Who can make it straight? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, ponder, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. God made both prosperity and God made adversity. God made the opportunity to be joyful. God also made the opportunity to ponder, to consider. So that mortals may not find out anything that will come after them. You want to know what's going to happen? You don't get to. This is part of this frustration, right? This is something you continue to battle with. Like, we don't know. We can't figure it out. And that's why he gets so mad. He just really drives after this wanting to know. What are we doing all this for? Well, it turns out God made it so that we can't figure out. And so what's his very next question? I love that he jumps from, like, the fact that, well, God made it straight. Whatever God made crooked, we can't make straight. And, like, God made the the good, the, the prosperity. God made the bad, the adversity. And then what's the next thing he says? In my vain life, I have seen everything. There are righteous people who perish in their righteousness, and there are wicked people who prolong their life in their evil doing. It's the odyssey. That's the, like the ultimate question of like why people so often want to wrestle with God. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? People want to just pound over this question over and over again. People have written books about how the fact that the Bible and that religion still can't answer this question. And yet here he's addressing it. Why is he addressing it? Because that's what he's seen. In his vein, in his balance, in his temporary life. Righteous people, even though they live the way they're supposed to, this is wisdom literature, remember, right? You go down the path of wisdom, good things happen. You go down the path of foolishness, bad things happen. That's not what he's finding. This is Deuteronomistic too. Oh, I nailed it on the first try. Deuteronomy, the same, same concept. Do good, you get good. It just makes sense, right? Well, that's not what we find. When we start looking at, at life and what we start experiencing, that's not what we find. Do not be too righteous and do not act too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? The key word here is too, hence my awkwardly saying it. Because initially when you read this, you think, well, how can you really be too righteous or how could you act too wise? And how in the world is that going to destroy me? And I think he's getting to the point of self-righteousness. Like, too easily we, we just go over the top and bring ourselves to self-righteousness. And he's going to get to this point here in a minute about, like, humility. But he, he converses it by saying, do not be too wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? And see, this fits a little more into the traditional idea of Deuteronomy. Like, if you act like a fool, you're going to die. Start hopping out of buildings, you're going to die, right? Like, foolish things usually lead to death. It is good, here we are good again, that you should take hold of the one without letting go of the other. For the one who fears God shall succeed at both. So you got to take hold of the one. Take hold of the righteous. 
and then take hold of the wicked. And what do you get whenever you take hold of each one of those? You get balance. Here we are again. Think of scales. We're balanced again. For the one who fears God shall succeed in both. You don't succeed at being evil. That's not what he's saying. You succeed at balancing these out. You succeed at, at both goodness, but not to the point of self-righteousness, but also from keeping from being evil. There's your balance. Verse 19. Another proverb. Wisdom gives strength to the wise more than ten rulers that are in a city. He's done this before too. He's compared this idea that one wise person can be more powerful than, than multiples, multitudes of people who are foolish. It doesn't actually say who are foolish, but we assume these are foolish people. Surely there is no one on earth so righteous as to do good without ever sinning. Well, yeah, we could probably agree with that. And, again, this is humility, right? People may want to say they're really self-righteous, but, but he's, he's, he's knocking you back down. He's chopping your legs out from you a little bit. Surely there is no one on earth so righteous as to be without sinning. 21. Do not give heed to everything that people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have yourself cursed others. Don't gossip. It's just pretty much, that's all he's saying here. Don't gossip. It turns out that, that we know what's going to happen. People who are subordinate to others, they're probably going to curse the people who are above them. Right? You've said bad things about your employee, or about your employer, right? Just go ahead and admit it. You know you've done it. Mm-hmm. I know some of your employers, too. Yeah, I've done it, too, and I work here at the church. Don't worry about it. And that's what he's saying, right? Like, he's saying that, your heart knows that many times you have yourself cursed others. It's going to happen. But the wise people don't go around flapping their gums all the time. Who does that? Fools. Fools are the loud ones. 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. All of what? Todos. All of it. All of it is tested by wisdom. The idea of gossiping. The idea of too much self-righteousness, um, the idea that a little bit of wisdom makes you wiser than ten kings, all this stuff, he tested it by wisdom. And I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. Apparently it's not just enough to say, I will be wise. For he found himself far from wisdom. That which is, is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it? Wisdom is not just there for the taking. It's going to require something of you. And in fact, the idea of like kind of a, a perfect wisdom, back to verse 20, right? You're not going to find it. At least you're not going to achieve it. But that doesn't mean you don't try, right? Because wisdom is kind of the goal here. I turn my mind to know and to search Search out and to seek wisdom in the sum of things and to know that wickedness is folly and the foolishness is madness. So now he's turned a little bit. He's made a turn. A turn from searching out and seeking wisdom like he has been so far to see, search, searching out and to know that wickedness is folly and that foolishness is madness. Foolishness wickedness, 
folly and madness. 26, I found more bitter than death the woman who is a trap. Mm-hmm. Whose heart is, a, is snares and nests, whose hands are fetters. I found more bitter than death the woman who is a trap, whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. Man! Sorry, ladies. Apparently, Kohelet isn't fond of the, the female version. Now, I don't think that's what he's doing. In, in, in wisdom tradition, fo- <laughs> wisdom tradition, folly often is represented by a female. It's personified in a female. And so it, it makes sense that since he's just talked about wickedness is folly and foolishness is madness, that this folly, this woman, is trapping, right? Is grabbing people. It makes me think of the sirens in the Odyssey. Again, not nothing against women, just, just saying. Um, and yet, one who pleases God can escape her. Will escape her. Indeed, escapes her. But the sinner is taken by her. Why? Because sinners are foolish. See, this is what I found, says the teacher. After all of this examining, all this testing... Adding one thing to another to find the sum. He has this equation thing that he keeps going back to. And I think the reason he keeps going back to the equation because typically in wisdom literature, one plus one equals two. But this isn't what he's finding. One plus one doesn't always equal two. Because if one plus one equal two, then when you did good, you'd get good. And when you did bad, you'd get bad. That's not what he's finding. Adding one thing to another to find the sum which my mind has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all I have not found. Right? Again, he's just bashing on women here. Um, now, I think that the point here again is, through all of this looking he's done, he's found one. Why is wisdom far off? Because it's hard. He's found one among a thousand. That is, whether, whether this one has been able to, the one person who actually was able to get away from the woman with her, what did he call them, fetters? And see, this alone I found, that God made human beings straightforward. See, he gets such a negative aspect for so long, and all of a sudden he makes this huge shift again. This alone I found, that God made human beings straightforward. God made humans straight. And I'm not talking about sexual orientation. Think back to, to what was it, 13, whatever? I think it was 13, yeah. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? We don't got to make human beings straight from being crooked because God made them straight. So often we want to like, put in the doctrine of original sin into this, right? Like, well, humans are just skewed because of we're just born sinful. This, the, the Old Testament here has no, no concept of this doctrine of original sin. God made them straightforward. Made them straight. Made them 
good. And yet he still kind of ends it on this idea that yet they have devised many schemes, right? They're still very schemy. They're straight. God made them right. But they're squeamy. Schemy, squirmy. Any other S words you want to throw out there? Nope, don't, don't do it. Just don't do it. God made them good. That's why life is good. God made it good. And wisdom allows us to know that. Jesus said, I give you abundant life, right? Abundant life. Not the depressed life. Abundant. And that's what we have to sit on. That's what we get to end on. Again, right? We get to end with a little bit of a high note. So, let's pray. Father, we pray that we wouldn't take for granted the gift of life. The gift that you have given us. We pray that we wouldn't take it for granted, not even for a day. May we constantly be reminded by wisdom that, that death is our destiny. And may that forever give meaning to each day we have. We give you thanks for Jesus and that he came to give us life and life abundant. We ask now that the Holy Spirit would guide us by wisdom, guide us to just live into your will, and guide us into this idea of eternal life. Amen.